Emmett Till was a 14-year-old African-American boy that was accused of sexually harassing a woman in a grocery store in Mississippi in the summer of 1955 amidst the Jim Crow era. After the accusation, two men went to where Till was staying, kidnapped him, beat him, and lynched him. And as the accusations of those who committed this crime against Emmett Till began to fly around, the authorities of the state of Mississippi initially chose to defend the two men in question. Later, those two men were put on trial for the crime. However, this unjust jury found them to be not guilty for the charge of murder. And yet, not even a year later, these two men admitted publicly to committing the crime, openly and publicly. Carolyn Bryant, the woman who was allegedly harassed, also later revealed that Till never harassed her. How many times has something like this happened in the world? How many crimes like this do you think have happened in all of world's history? Whether small or big. From childhood playgrounds to corporate boardrooms. One person falsely accusing another of wrongdoing. And that person that is accused is forced to endure the emotional and sometimes physical pain of those lies. My suspicion is, is it's probably happened to all of us at one level or another. There are few things, friends, that illustrate the brokenness of the world more than false accusations. And when we read about them or experience them, what we want, rightly, of course, is justice, which is righteousness. When we hear that story about Emmett Till, it ushers forth moral disdain, even amongst the most hardened of criminals. Moral disdain comes out, and it should, because this world was never supposed to be this way. We all know that, and our moral indignation testifies to it. But what if all of us, what if all of us lived with not only a desire, but with a confident hope that judgment was coming? And that judgment would be just. What if we knew that down deep? What would that do for us? Amidst this broken world. When the most benign of false accusations come upon us to the most severe. What if we were 1000% convinced that God the righteous would bring judgment on the earth. And then when he comes perfectly execute his righteousness such that all evil and evildoers were judged. And all the righteous were cleared. Which would then usher into a perfect eternity with no more lies ever to be uttered again. What would that do for us? If we were so convinced of that reality, what would it do for us in our daily lives? Now, the thought of such a thing, of such a judgment like that, for some of us, is terrifying. As I meditated on this week, even me is sometimes terrifying. But for those, the thought of judgment is liberating. What I want to suggest this morning is that the judgment that the Bible so frequently talks about is actually fuel For our joy amidst this broken world. See, for Christians, Christians, the judgment is not something to be avoided, something to be avoided. The judgment is not something to be embarrassed about, but something to be embraced for our joy and for God's glory. And it has been for centuries of Christians, as we will see. And so may it be with us. So the question that we'll consider this morning is this. How does the judgment fuel our joy? How does the judgment fuel our joy? That's the question that we'll consider from Psalm chapter 7. If you're new here, our practice is just to walk right through books of the Bible. and We are walking right through the Psalms this summer. Uh, Next week, Lord willing, we'll take a look at Psalm 8. But I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer to that question. How does the judgment fuel our joy? Here's my answer. Judgment fuels joy because... Judgment births a world of righteousness. That's what we'll see. That's David's hope. Five points this morning. Here's the first. The injustice. The injustice. Psalms we know, the book of Psalms, are about life in the covenant. Each of the Psalms are building off of one another. 
So if we were to go back and look at Psalm chapter one, we see there about the blessed man versus the wicked man. The blessed man we see, this is important for our passage today. The blessed man stands in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked man does not. Psalm one. And then Psalm two talks about that blessed man that kisses the sun amidst the raging nations. Psalm 3 and 4 is the testimony of the blessed man, David, who seeks refuge uh, from God amidst his own raging nation as his son Absalom pursues him. That's Psalm 3 and 4. Psalm 5 is a request to act righteously amidst that raging nation. Psalm 6 is a prayer for deliverance. And Psalm 7 is a call for justice to these raging nations. And Lord willing, Psalm 8, you'll see next week, is a call for triumph of glory that that deliverance has come. Do you see how these work together? But here in verses 1 and 2, we find the injustice that will give rise to David's request for justice. You can see that in the superscript up there. That little, there's little words above the psalm. This is a Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush a Benjamite. Shigion is a kind of, likely a kind of music to be sung corporately. But here we find the occasion for the psalm. And it says there some words of a guy by the name of Cush from the tribe of Benjamin that are being leveled at David. He's accusing him. And what makes this worse is that Cush, this guy accusing David, is from the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin, of course, is one of the tribes of Israel. And David, of course, is a king of Israel. In other words, this charge that's being leveled at David is from not from without, but from within God's people. We also know something else about the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin is the tribe by which the first king of Israel came, Saul. Which also might indicate something else to us about this psalm. We know that Saul pursued David as well. It was not only Absalom that pursued David, but it was Saul that pursued David. Another illustration of a raging nation from within the nation of Israel. But regardless, David wants refuge from Cush and his pursuers, it says, lest they tear his soul apart. Now you should know, guys, that soul can oftentimes in the Old, Old Testament refer, refer to both body and spirit. And that's probably what it means here. David wants God to save him from his accusers that are threatening his life, both body and spirit. We'll look at this more closely in a minute, but when you look at verses 3 to 5, we see that David believes these words from Cush are false. He doesn't tend to agree with them, though he still asks the Lord to search him. But assuming for a moment that he is innocent, David's being falsely accused and falsely pursued may result in his soul being torn apart. And herein is the injustice and the cry for help. Just as it was in the trial concerning Emmett Till, and as it has been in our lives at some level, all of us, we have other, we have an otherwise innocent man who has been falsely accused and in danger of being murdered. I believe all of us would agree that insofar as David is innocent, his being falsely accused and potentially murdered, we would all agree, right, is unrighteous. It's wrong. None of us would want to say that Cush's actions are justifiable if, in fact, David is innocent. What Cush has done and is doing is wrong. And we know it's wrong because of that moral compass that exists in all of us. Right? This moral compass, I believe, is best explained by the Bible's teaching that humanity was all created in the image of God. And this created in the image of God amongst humans makes us different from ants and ant eaters. Is we were created with the ability to know God. We know something of morality because we have the ability to be in relation with him. Capacity to know him. Therefore, we are to display him. Therefore, when we see wrongs, we instinctively say that that's wrong. Nobody ever had to teach it to us. So, for instance, when little Johnny stole your pet stuffed giraffe at the age of two and you lashed out, you knew that it was wrong. Right? Nobody had to teach that to you. Which indicates not only the existence of God, but the need for a world to reflect the righteousness of that God. Our hearts know this. C.S. Lewis said that the heart never takes the place of the head, 
but it can and should obey it. Hearts instinctively feel immorality, injustice. And injustices and our disdain for them scream loudly that, as David writes there in verse 9, God is righteous and this world we live in is not, but needs to be. So, friends, this is why the vacuous nature of an atheistic or a secular humanistic worldview, it has no answer for injustices and moral indignation. And yet in Christ, we do have answers. We understand as Christians that the sooner this injustice is dealt with and the righteous comes in, the sooner that will happen, the more we will have that joy that we all long for. And so the injustice here is being falsely accused and pursued, which leads us to the second point, the commitment to justice. The commitment to justice. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We tend to evaluate that statement externally, right? All the injustice is out there. That's the way we tend to evaluate that. But I wonder if any of you have ever taken the time to consider that statement internally. In other words, if it's true that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and you are committed to the work of justice or righteousness then have you considered the injustices that exist in your own heart? It's very easy to spot them out there. Are we attentive to the ones that are here? Well, friends, David was so committed to a world of righteousness that he did just that. He was willing even to not only consider the fact that he had injustices possibly in his own heart, but even suffer for it if that's what it meant to bring about a world of righteousness. In the very next section of verses there, in verses 3 to 5, David says to us and the Lord, Listen, if I've done what Cush has said, if I repaid my friend with evil or stole from him without cause, then Lord, take me down. That's what he says. Put me in the smoke show, as it were. Take care of me. Trample my life down. And take all of my glory as a king. Take that away too. If I've done this, then get rid of it. Get rid of me. Get rid of my glory. He's willing to suffer To bring about that world of righteousness for his own sin. That's David's commitment level to a world of righteousness. He wants it so badly that wherever he is the reason for evil's existence, then he wants his own glory to be done away with. Now friends, it's popular nowadays to be an advocate for justice. But what's curiously not popular, nor has it ever been, is to be an advocate for one's own injustices. To seek out and be an advocate to get the sin out of our own hearts. To repent for that. Never been popular. But even in the midst of our calls for justice, still not popular. I saw a cartoon on the New Yorker this week that had three people talking and one guy in the middle. And it said in the comment below it, of the comic, it says, That's strange. I remember it differently in a way that aligns with my worldview and casts me in a positive light. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, it's easy to identify, right, all of the specks in everybody else's eyes, especially our enemies. And it's very difficult to identify the, the plank that is in our own eye. Very few people are equally committed to having that plank be pulled out of their own eye. And yet, beloved church family, that's what it's going to take if we are ever going to arrive on those celestial shores, shores that we so desperately want to see come about. It's easy again to call attention to everyone else's wrongs and where they exist, we should call them out, of course. But are we prepared to do the same for ourselves? Are we prepared to do the same as what David does here? Are we prepared to lay down our own glory to see a greater glory come about in the world? Well, God is teaching us this morning that we need to be. Tim and Kathy Keller write in their book on marriage, quote, if two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. So true, isn't it? It's not enough, by the way, when we say this, that yeah, yeah, I need to, I need to address my own sin. It's not enough to say, well, yeah, yeah, I know I'm not perfect. Not enough. It's not enough to say, I know I've done some things wrong here and there. Not enough to do that. 
in the work of bringing righteousness into the world, it's easy to accuse the other, our enemies, with specificity and remain abstract in the personal. So easy to do that. And so, beloved church family, we have to get specific in our own sins. Be committed to the work of righteousness such that we are confessing sin specifically and willing to suffer for it if need be. Take a look at the passage. David lists out specific things that if he had done them, he wants them to be dealt with. And likewise, we are, if we are going to see a world of righteousness, we too need to not only confess our wrongs, but confess them specifically and be willing to receive the consequences. So do not say, beloved, that you want Washington City to be a better city if you are unwilling to do that. Do not say that you want your marriage to be more holy if you're unwilling to do that. Do not say that you want our church or your family situations or whatever else it is. Uh, don't will, be willing to say you want it to be better if you're unwilling to do that. To repent, that is, of your own sin with specificity. So, beloved, be so committed to a world of righteousness that you are prepared to suffer for your own unrighteousness so that justice will come about in whatever that sphere is. That's what it's going to take. Advocacy without personal transparency is hypocrisy. And as we said last week from Psalm 6, the church should be the one place we can be transparent. This should be the one place we should do that because it is we by grace, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, not our own doing. This is the one place we know as Christians, that it is repentance that leads to righteousness, right? We're the one group of people on planet earth that believe that. That know and believe, as Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for Christ's sake will find it. That the gospel teaches us that dying to self leads to everlasting life, to holiness, to righteousness. That's our unique message. That's what we're trying to steward in the membership and the discipline and the teaching of this church. We are not self-righteous. Christians ought to never be self-righteous. We know that whatever righteousness we have is only a gift of God's grace to us. It's graciousness. We should be marked by humility and confession of sin ourselves. So we've seen injustices scream that the God of righteousness is real. That injustices scream for a better world. Our commitment to seeing his righteousness come about in the world begins with ourselves, not with our enemies. And then thirdly, we have then the promise of judgment. The promise of judgment. Injustices exist. We, we need to be committed to the work. Uh, but we can uh, also need to be committed to knowing also that judgment is coming. So from verses 6 down to 11, which is the heart of this psalm, by the way, we see David's confident hope. He's already asked the Lord to save him. But in these verses, we see how David understands that salvation is going to come about. Look at verse 6 there. It says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, he says. And then underline that next line. This is critical to David in his mind. And guys, I would argue this is a critical aspect of the entirety of the teaching of the entire Bible. Underline that. He says... You have appointed a judgment. It's a critical argument to David. And again, the rest of scripture. You have appointed a judgment. Two things about that. One, notice David asked the Lord to act on his behalf. Just as we talked about from Psalm 5, when David asked the Lord to lead him in his righteousness because of his enemies, David knows that he is not the one to be the vessel of God's judgment. David knows God's got a day for that. And that's what he's trusting. This seems to be a personal attack. We understand that God has given the sword of justice to the state. And state can do things that the personal can't or shouldn't. But this seems to be a personal attack. And David, even as a representative of the government, is trusting God to bring about the righteousness that is needed to serve Cush. Which, of course, is a perfect illustration of foreshadowing of the ministry of Christ himself. 1 Peter 2.23 When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How did Jesus not just write every time he was hit? Because he knew a day was appointed. And he was going to trust that day and not try to get his own justice on the day in which he was being struck. But the other thing to notice about this day of appointed of a judgment, the other thing that's at the heart of this passage is that David believes, as all Christians have believed, that there is an appointed time of judgment. David explains more of what happens at that judgment in the verses that follow. Take a look at it. Verse 8, the Lord judges people on that day. David once again even invites the Lord to judge, uh, judge him according to his righteousness. Right? There it is. There's his commitment level. You judge me. Which, of course, we know that even Christians on the day of judgment will be judged. Romans 14 makes this clear. Hebrews 9 makes this clear. But on the day in which the Christian is judged, we, of course, will appeal to the judgment that has already come. And our appeal to Christ. But when David says, when he invites the Lord to judge him according to his righteousness, it could be that maybe this passage is teaching that his righteousness could mean that like this, he's talking about the fact that he's innocent of these charges. That could be it. But I can't help but think that this passage is pointing us to the imputed righteousness that is given to the Christian. Imputed meaning credited to, to the person, credited to the Christian. The Lord's imputed righteousness. The righteousness that is decreed upon us by grace through faith in Christ. And if you say, Nathan, you're playing fast and loose with the test text. Well, remember, when Paul was arguing for imputed righteousness, credited righteousness, what was his whole point? What was the nexus, the heart of his argument? Abraham. So Abraham apparently understood imputed righteousness. Why couldn't David? David understands that there is an appointed time of judgment and he wants God to bring it about. And he wants it so much that he's glad to come up under that judgment himself. And then comes David's confident hope on that day of judgment. Verse 9. If verses 6 to 11 are the heart of this psalm, verse 9, guys, is the heart, is the center of the heart. You understand verse 9 of Psalm 7, you get the whole passage. When he says, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. Two things. There's the one thing. And then may you establish the righteous. Now let's ask the question. Why does David want him to do it? God to do it. Because as he goes on. You who test the minds and hearts. Oh righteous God. That's why he wants him to be the one. That's doing the judging on the day of judgment. Because he God. Tests minds and hearts. Because he's the righteous God. Verse 11. God is a righteous judge. So David is emphasizing that for righteousness to be established on the earth, the evil must be judged by one that is righteous himself. In other words, he's appealing to the one that is righteous, God, the standard. David wants us to understand that on the day of judgment, that God, the God of righteousness will judge righteously because he is the definition of righteousness, the source of it all. He is not an unjust judge, but he is the very definition of righteousness. Therefore, that judgment on that day will be perfect. And then notice his insightful comment. Verse 11. This is so encouraging. God is so sensitive to righteousness and the purging of evil that he, quote, feels indignation every day. That's what God's like. You want to know what God's like? You see that thing on the news or that thing happened to you today or yesterday and you wonder, does God care? Well, there's a verse right there. He sees it and he feels it and he's not happy about it. Not only will God bring judgment and not only uh, not only that he will bring a righteous or a just judgment, but also he is angry towards the wrongs that happen in the world every day. And of course, we see this in Jesus himself, don't we? Who is the exact imprint of God's nature. Who is the image of the invisible God. You see Jesus, you see God. Which, by the way, is what Jesus said himself. 
Jesus, right, is angrily rebuking the Pharisees that were using the name of God to profit from the people. Jesus is angry about that. We see this when Jesus saw Jerusalem and wept over its sinfulness. We see this when Jesus called the sinful woman to sin no more. We see this in Jesus when he begins his ministry and says, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. God hates evil friends so much that he sent his only son into the middle of our unrighteous world so that he might overcome that unrighteousness and bring about a world of righteousness. You want to talk about David being committed to righteousness. How much more is God committed to righteousness that he would send his son into the world to overcome it? And so, friends, yes, I agree. When you and I are in the middle of what seems to be clear and present evil, it's easy to to wonder if God cares. I get that. I've been there. Matter of fact, I would even go so far as to say David gets that. How many times do we read from David's own lips? How long, O Lord? David understands that sometimes it doesn't seem as though God cares. But David at the same time also says he does. I know he does. We see this clearly in the passage. God's angry about the injustices. He intends to do something about it. A day is appointed, guys. I want you to think about this. A day is appointed. A trial date is set. And all of us are going to be there on that trial. And we will stand before the judge. Give account for our lives. David knows that, and we know that by looking at the person, the work of Jesus Christ. God knows, God cares, God sees, God remembers, God's doing something. Nothing and no one is more powerful than him. And so trust his purposes in the midst of darkness. Friend, he's more angry about it than you are. And I know that, again, because he sent his son straight into the middle of it to overcome it. He's more angry about it than we are, and a day is appointed when he's going to deal with it. That's why you and I have to work harder at remembering, at meditating, at confidently hoping in the appointed day of judgment. Because on that day, when Christ returns, he will fully and finally test everyone's mind and heart and a level. And he will on that day level a judgment that will be both sobering and celebratory on that day of judgment, both sobering and Celebratory, sobering, because those, unlike David, who are unwilling to repent for their sin, will have to answer for it. Celebratory, because on that day, we who are trusting in Christ and are repenting of sin will be fully and finally saved. Hallelujah. Now, to be clear, I want to be clear about that. When I say that, Christian, you are fully saved today, but you are not fully and finally saved yet. Right? Read Romans 8 this afternoon. What we are be, we, we are not yet fully there. Because on the day that Jesus returns, 1 John 3, 2, we will see him and we will be like him. That day's not yet, right? I'm still a mess. You are too, right? But in Christ, we're positionally counted righteous. But on that day, we'll be complete. And so for all of the times in which we ourselves are sinned, all those times in which we were in the position of Cush, maybe, And all the times that we have been sinned against, Christ has taken the punishment for all unrighteousness uh, for those that sin against him and believe in him. He's taken that punishment on himself. God's wrath, his indignation, as it says here, his anger over Nathan Knight's sin, over your sin that trusting in Christ was delivered on Christ in our place. That's what happened on the cross why it's so terrible that's why it's so uniquely awful that's why isaiah prophesied that jesus was going to be pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement the punishment that brought us peace beloved if you don't understand and believe that substitutionary atonement is central to the gospel you don't understand the gospel to lose sight of that is to lose sight of that judgment Because it is there on the cross where we that repent and believe our sin is dealt with. And just as important, it is there on the cross where we not only were judged. Nathan Knight was judged in Christ 2,000 years ago at the Christ. My sin was judged there fully. But not yet finally as that will happen upon the return. But also, just as important, that is where we receive our righteousness. 
That's where the Christian receives our righteousness. At the cross, we not only receive the judgment for our sin, but we also receive our righteous status when Christ's righteousness is transferred to us that believe. See, one of the things that many Christians themselves fail to understand is not only the sacrifice of Christ on the cross where we're judged, but also the active obedience of Jesus in his 33 years on planet Earth. You ever, you ever wondered why didn't Jesus just show up as an adult like Adam was and just deal with it all? It's because he came as a baby so as to live a life of righteousness. He needed to live a life of holiness, a life of righteousness. It was for this reason where at his baptism, remember John the Baptist says, I can't baptize you. And remember what Jesus said? Jesus says it is necessary. It is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Right? That's what he did. He's the only one that did that. You ever ask the question, how can one man's death thousands of years ago atone for the sin of thousands of people all over the earth? You ever ask yourself that question? Well, the answer is right here because he's the only sinless one. He was both infinite because he was God and he was man. He was righteous man. Therefore, he can uniquely atone for the sins of the world. Those that believe on him, his active righteousness. All who have repented and believed on him might have the righteousness of Christ credited to them by grace through faith in Jesus' life and death. Paul summarizes this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, so well. He says, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, that is to receive sin, who knew no sin. So that, why? So that in him, we who believe, we might become the righteousness of God. It's a great verse to memorize and meditate on this week. Can't you see, friends, why we Christians love the gospel? This good news. Because of this gospel, we don't have to fear the day of judgment. When Christ will return and establish a world of righteousness. Listen, we don't even have to fear when other people judge us. Right? Because whatever judgment you might have, even if you're here right now, you're judging me, right? I'm a pastor. I'm saying all of my opinions are out in public, right? It's going to happen. I know it happens every single week. If you even, I don't have to fear you, right? God's judged me. If God's judged me, I certainly don't have to fear your judgment, right? We don't have to fear that because we have already been judged the most in Christ and it's been dealt with. It's been granted. It's been credited to us. We're now God's children. What have we to fear? This is the gospel that we love so much that we just sang about. We have nothing to fear and everything to gain. Whereas the unrepentant sinner, friend, has the very opposite. We see that in the next verses. Injustice is abound. It's kind of verse point one. We come, we, 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 we get committed to the work of justice, even in ourselves. That was the second point. Third point, we, we hope in the promise of judgment. Then fourth point, we now consider the cost of injustice. The cost of injustice. From verses 12 to 16, this is what awaits the unrepentant sinner. And I want you to see, friend, if you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, your righteousness, don't lose sight of verse 12. Look at verse 12. This is critical to see. There's the qualifier. If a man does not repent. That's a critical piece of the puzzle. If a man does not repent. Now to repent means to turn around from sin and turn to God. In other words, to agree that you have failed. To agree that you deserve to receive judgment. And you're turning to God. Asking for His righteousness, His grace upon you. As David does, you're sorrowful for the patterns of your sin such that you take refuge in the Lord, not your own works. How many times when I talk to people and ask them, they ask them if they're a Christian, and I say, can you tell me what that means? Can you tell me what the gospel is? And they say something to the effect of, well, I try to do good things. It's not the gospel. That's a terrifying way to live. I, yeah, we need Jesus Christians say, I turn from sin, trust in Jesus alone for my salvation. You trust him, as the text says, for a new and upright heart. I don't trust me working myself out, going to church or taking communion enough times. No, I trust in God. That's what repentance is and does. Christians don't face the world or any or God with any amount of self-righteousness. 
We only trust in God for righteousness. We have not achieved anything on our own. What knowledge we have, what love we have, what good works we have, what hope we have, what salvation we have is all from God. We're repenting of our sin. The only thing that we contributed to our salvation is our own sin. Christians should know that. We did nothing but repent and believe on Jesus. But the one that doesn't do that, the one that doesn't repent, the one that doesn't trust him, the one that stays in their sin, well, he gets exactly what he asked for. That's what the passage teaches. Take a look. Verse 12. If a man doesn't repent, it says God will wet his sword, ready his bow, have prepared for him deadly weapons and fiery shafts. Now listen, when you read that, my suspicion is you're wondering, is God sadistic? Is he evil in himself just to sort of like, you know, he's doing this? No, remember what David says about him. He says that he's a righteous judge. Right? He's doing what must be done to have a world of righteousness to be born. He's bringing salvation and condemnation. That's what a good judge does. That's what justice does. And that condemnation is not only deserved, it's not only just, but it's what the unrepentant designed for him or herself. That's what the passage teaches. It's not only just what they get from God, but it's what they ask for themselves. Read it. Look at verse 14. The wicked man conceives evil. In other words, he's done it. Is pregnant with mischief. Gives birth to lies. Verse 15. Makes a pit Digs it out and what happens? And falls into that hole that he has made. His mischief, or we could say one sin, returns on his own head. On his own skull, his violence descends. Friends, the straightforward teaching of the Bible is that no one deserves heaven. And everyone deserves hell. Myself included. Unrepented sin from the smallest of lies to the greatest of murders. From the kind neighbor who refuses to to submit to Christ's authority. To the terrorist who flies a plane into a building. Each of them have one thing in common. Their unwillingness to stop living for themselves and lay down their own idols. Combined with the determination to go their own way. Which results in the person getting exactly what they wanted. That's the straightforward teaching of the Bible. God gives them over. He just lets them have what they want. That's their judgment. And in the end, those sinful desires that the Lord let you have wind up being the very same things that lead to your own downfall. Friends, it's as though an addict wants the fleeting pleasure of cocaine and the Lord lets them have it. And they like it. Makes them feel good for a few minutes. And they want more and more and more until eventually the addict is a shell of themselves. But they got what they wanted. They got the drug, which wound up killing them. So it is with the unrepentant. They get what they want in this life, but it only serves to be the very same thing that condemns them in the next life. And so, friend, if this is you, If you're the person that is either trying to have Jesus, but not his lordship. Friend, you're in danger of the day of judgment. That is, if you are unwilling to repent of sin and trust in Jesus alone and be born again to a new and living hope. And instead, you just want to keep leaning into that thing, whatever it is. Leaning into this world as home. Leaning in consciously, consistently, unrepentantly, knowingly disobeying the Lord's commands then the day of judgment will be a terror for you. Listen, I don't, I don't get any joy out of telling you that. But that's just what, that's what it says. I wouldn't love you if I didn't tell you that. I would be a terrible person if that was true and I didn't tell you. It would be terrible if I knew that and you were living that way and I knew it and I said nothing. I would be awful. I'm trying, I'm trying to love you. More than that, God is loving you by having you be here this morning and hear this. It would be way easier for me not tell you this and just tell you everything's great. Here's a couple life happy lessons. Go on and live your week. 
Judgment's real. This text is written for you, friend. It's warning you. It's telling you that the coming day of judgment, it's calling you to repent. To do as David and seek refuge in the Lord. To look to him as your shield and not yourself, not your good deeds. To learn how to renounce this world as the final home and live for a better one. And be willing, as David was, to have all of your glory, have your life even trampled down, if that's what it means. Trust in Christ to be judged on your behalf. Or you're left to be judged yourself. That's your choice. Jesus makes this crystal clear, guys. Right after that verse that you probably know in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right down from there, just a few lines, is John three thirty six, Where it says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on them. Or as Jesus himself said of that day of judgment, Matthew 24, 49 to 51, he's spoken a parable and said this. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants. This is Jesus is representing sin and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Matthew 24. That's the words of Jesus. Friend, escape this day by trusting in Christ to receive your judgment, to deal with your sin at the cross, and then enjoy him for eternal life. Live a new and holy life, walking away from that other lifestyle. And friend, if you desire to do this, come talk to me. And we'll help you to know what that looks like. But as for the rest of us, Those of us that have done this, those that have repented of sin or trusting in Christ, being born again to a new and living hope, believing that Christ has dealt with your judgment. You've been judged in Christ at the cross, and you know that on the day of judgment you will be judged, but you're trusting in Christ's righteousness to give you access to the world of righteousness. If that's you, daily repenting of sin, trusting in Jesus, let's now consider the final part of this passage, the joy of judgment. I realize that when I say that, it probably sounded a little odd to you. The joy of judgment. For those of us apart from Christ, again, there is no joy in judgment. But for those of us in Christ, by grace, we have plenty to shudder about. But much more to shout about. Amen? Because when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead at the appointed time, it will give rise to a world of righteousness. Can you imagine that? Heaven on earth. This has been the great hope for Christians for thousands of years. And today, we've got to think about this. Guys, I'm conv- I was convicted this week. You know, I, y'all hear me talk about heaven a lot. I don't think about the day of judgment much. And yet, when you look at Christian history or the Bible itself, they're talking about this all the time. Right? You see it here in David, right? You heard it from Jesus. I just read that passage from Matthew 24. He's regularly talking about the day of judgment. We see it in Paul standing on the Areopagus. The Apostle Paul appealed to an unbelieving crowd. He's not preaching to the church as it were. And he says in Acts 17.30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands who? All people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That was Acts 17. And then Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, right at the end of his life. Henceforth, he says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, same language as David, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing? To his church planner, Titus. He motivated, Paul motivated the godliness of the people there on the island of Crete by saying in Titus 2.13 that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the great glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Reflecting on the people that were causing Christians so much trouble for their faithfulness, Peter gave hope to his his readers by saying in 1 Peter 4, 5, but they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. That That was the thing that Peter thought would give strength to the Christians that were being pressed. It was the day of judgment. The Apostle John, you notice what I'm doing here, by the way. I'm just trying to get everybody in the New Testament. Right? The Apostle John counsels Christians who are experiencing hardship from the world by telling them, 1 John 3, 2, I've already quoted this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. <laughs> and of course, so much of the close of the Bible is about the day of judgment, isn't it? Just listen to the final words of the Bible. The conclusion, as it were, of the world and of the holy book that God has written. These are the final words. Revelation 22, 12 to 15. Behold, this is Jesus talking. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. He's talking about washing their robes in the blood of Christ. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let, listen to this, and let the one who is thirsty. Are you thirsty this morning? And let the one who is thirsty, let the one who desires to drink, to be born again, to be cleansed. You say, I can't pay. You're exactly right. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Because Jesus has paid the price on your behalf. If you would but trust him. And so friends, I recognize that talking about the day of judgment can be uncomfortable. But remember, we are not the judge on that day. We believe that Christ is the judge and on the appointed day, he will deal with every wrong and introduce the fullness of every right. It's the work of the church to represent his judgments in the day and time now. Right? It's the work of the church to say, yeah, we think you're in Christ, we think you're not. But we're not the final judge. God is the final judge. We're trusting in him. We're trying to reflect his will. And on that day, we will enjoy On that day, what we all want so badly, a world completely absent from any unrighteousness and a world full of righteousness because God will be all and in all on that day. David's longing for this day and his confident hope is seen right there in verse 12. Look at it. I will give, I will give to the Lord thanks due. Notice the future orientation. I will give to the Lord thanks due his, to his righteousness, due to his righteousness. Christians are thankful that we are safe on the day of judgment because we trust his righteousness to be counted to us by grace through faith in Jesus' righteousness. He goes on to say that he will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. This is what we wait for as we endure pain and suffering and false accusations or sometimes accurate accusations that have been covered by the blood of Christ. This is the day we wait for. So, beloved, try and imagine a world where this day of judgment wasn't real. Where evil and wickedness would go on forever. Try and imagine a world where the Third Reich and Stalin's regime were never, ever judged. Try to imagine a world where the murders of Emmett Till were never, never answered for. Try to imagine a world where abusers that got away never had anything to fear, never accused, never actually dealt with. Try to imagine a world where there was no hope for the thing that we hunger for most, a world of righteousness, a world where all things are made new. Try and imagine a world that had no hope of heaven. 
Friends, the good news is you don't have to. Because that world's not real. It doesn't exist. A day is appointed. It will come, as Jesus says, like a thief in the night. And on that day, verse 9, on that day, the evil of the wicked will come to an end and he will establish the righteous. Jesus will hold all the unrepentant and unbelieving accountable and he will give the repentant, the believing, all that we don't deserve but we long for. A world where our enemies are dealt with, a world where our own sin is dealt with and it's no longer a struggle. Can you imagine that? don't have to struggle anymore with all the things that are jacked up right here. I don't have to struggle at all. I just wake up and I'm obedient every day. Oh, let it come. And we will finally get to see the one of whom our soul loves. That bought it all for us. That we want to see and enjoy and eat with. Therefore, may we join David in giving thanks due to his righteousness and not our own. May we look forward to the singing of praises to his name on that day. But until then, beloved, be reminded in Christ your sins are judged. And when the day of judgment comes, he will bring an end to all evil. And he will establish the righteous. May such a promise of such a judgment give you, give us joy as we wait. We agree, God, that unrighteousness is real, not only out there, but in here. We thank you for the hope of Christ who was judged on our behalf, that was like David, was willing to be trampled down and have his glory set aside so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that that sacrifice was received as evidenced by the resurrection. And so now we have hope. And Lord, the day, there's one thing left. We read about there in Revelation. All your promises are yes in Christ. We see that. One left, that day of judgment. And Lord, I'm so sick and tired of my own sin. I'm so sick and tired of this world's sin and the brokenness that's here. We pray as Revelation teaches us to pray. Come. And come soon. Thank you. For the joy of a day of judgment. That we can be confident. Everything will be made right. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.